On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about the LRT because, hey, we're in Hamilton. Why wouldn't we talk about the LRT? But also because a story in The Spectator suggests that maybe we could be expecting the cost of this thing to go over the billion dollars and then what? Who's paying for that? Well, we'll talk about that one. Uh, we're going to be talking about deep fakes. You've maybe never heard of deep fakes. You should hear about deep fakes. This is something that it sounds funny when you first hear about it, but there are concerning, possibly serious, maybe even sinister things that could happen with this bit of technology. And the CFL commissioner is heading out on a European tour to Denmark and Sweden and Germany and Austria and France. For what? What are we actually, what is he, what is the league hoping to accomplish overseas? All that. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Matthew Van Donjon from The Spectator had a piece in the paper. You can still find it online. Headline was, Will Hamilton's LRT exceed its $1 billion budget? Hmm. Uh, Earlier today, MPP Donna Skelly from Hamilton was on with Bill Kelly. In Matthew's piece that she was talking about and that Bill was talking about with her, uh, Matthew Van Donjen explained that he has received documents, political documents, showing there is a good chance the answer to that question from that headline will be yes. There's a good chance that the cost of the LRT is going to run over a billion dollars. Now, what happens If the cost of the LRT goes over the billion that the province has promised, well, here's what Donna had to say to Bill this morning. But having just returned from 10 days of uh, pre-budget consultations, I can assure you that it is a billion and only a billion. Um, If it does happen to exceed the billion dollars, the city will be responsible for finding out how to, to cover any additional costs. So this morning, right around the time that Donna was on the station with Bill, uh, Councillor Brad Clark sent out a notice of motion that he intends to bring to council the next few days. And in it, he will be asking the Minister of Transportation for some clarity, for some clarification, for a little, well, let's tell us what's going on, basically, is the short form of this. Who pays the extra costs for sure if the costs go over that amount? Let me bring in Brad Clark, who has suddenly become a regular with his motions that he's been putting out that are all good talking points, which is why he's here. But uh, Brad, thanks for doing this again today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Anytime. This issue of whether or not the LRT could go over a billion dollars and what happens if it does go over, it seems to me this has been a predictable concern. Whether or not we predicted that it would happen, the concern or at least the possibility that this could happen and what do we do if it does seems like it's been predictable for years. How have we not nailed this down before now? I don't know why it hasn't been nailed down. Um, and, and I guess my concern is that there's a, a new government. And so even if it had been nailed down with the previous liberal government, um, all bets are off until we get clarification from the government of Ontario. And, I mean, you've been in politics long enough at the municipal level, at the provincial level. You know that, uh, I'll say nothing, maybe not nothing, but a lot of things don't come in on budget. And if it does, maybe the budget was generous at the time, or maybe something has been cut out to make it work. But guessing that there is a possibility that the LRT could go over the billion dollar budget, uh, it, it doesn't require a whole lot of creativity or cynicism or intelligence, Brad. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, I've, I've said it before on the show. That proves my point. You don't need a lot of intelligence to think that that may happen. 
Uh, yeah, there's always an expectation that large capital infrastructure projects will go over budget. The difference with this one is we've been talking about the billion dollars really since 2007. And inflation alone since 2007 in, in Canada and in, in Ontario have, have come close to uh, cumulatively 21%. So that would be $200 million on top of the billion dollars. Uh, that we need to understand who has to pay that if it's just straight inflation. Yeah, So, uh, and this is in your motion, notice of motion that you've put. You've, you've listed some stats in there about what inflation and cost of living and everything else has done. And you're right. What was a billion dollars 10 years ago is not a billion. You don't get the same thing for, the, for, your, for your billion dollars for those who have a billion to spend. You don't get the same thing for your billion now. So it makes sense that these concerns are valid. This is not just people whistling at, at the moon. This is a, a legitimate concern. Well, and, and there's been lots of rumors and innuendo and lots of talking. Uh, and so when I, I was crunching the numbers over the weekend and, and I found the, uh, you know, as we're talking 21% increase over, over that period of time, that's a significant increase. And then I heard from Debbie Del Nova, who is the uh, uh, HSR boss uh, for the city of Hamilton, that Metrolinks, our bus costs uh, to purchase a new bus for Metrolinks have increased by 30%. Now, that's significant. And, and so it just set off a lot of alarm bells, and I could not find anything anywhere indicating um, who was going to pay for the escalating costs of LRT. So I thought it was prudent that we ask for it in writing. Well, and again, one more thing just about that number. Um at one point, and everybody will remember this, or most people will, when the LRT debate was right down to the the nuts and bolts, and it was a, whether they're going to live or die, uh, the Kathleen Wynne government went back and extended the length of the LRT back to Eastgate Mall, extended the, the uh, I mean, by extending the length, obviously extending the cost, and yet miraculously, it cut, a, it cut something else, but miraculously came in at exactly the same billion dollars. That, to me, caused some skepticism right there, but that seemed very, very convenient. Yeah, if you if you remember originally, it was supposed to be McMaster to Eastgate. Yep. And then the government of Ontario uh, proposed it going down James Street, and many people speculated that that was a cost-saving measure for the government of Ontario. But from an engineering standpoint, it became impossible for it to go down James Street. And uh, Councillor Whitehead, I believe, was the councillor at the time that proposed that it go back to Eastgate, and the city asked the province, and they agreed. But you're correct. The billion-dollar price tag has not changed through any of this. All of these different machinations, um, it's always been a billion dollars. Um, but the real challenge is when you're dealing with a large infrastructure project, it's not just inflation. You're, you're looking at many other things that, that could increase the cost. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Brad, I cut you off just before the break there. We were talking about how miraculously, no matter what has been done to change the length of the line, the direction of the line, where the LRT is going to go, how short, how long it's going to be, it always seems to have come in at the same price, which maybe should make people a little suspicious of what the actual cost is going to be. I, I agree with that statement completely. And, and it's important that we recognize that during the election and ever since uh, the the government was elected. Uh, the premier, the minister, and and MPP Skelly has been have been incredibly careful and fastidious about 
stating it's one billion dollars. It's one billion dollars. It's one billion dollars. We committed one billion dollars, and that's after what's already been spent. Correct, and and so there's there's some concern about what does that mean in terms of the money that has been spent. Are they recognizing all of that money that has been spent as appropriately spent on the capital project? I know some of it uh, has been spent on communications. I don't know how much. But here's a government who's really crunching numbers, um, and everyone across the province is waiting with bated breath for the the provincial budget. Uh, And I just felt it was most prudent, most reasonable and wise to ask them in advance, in writing, what happens if it's over a billion dollars, who's paying? Please clarify. Now, in a time of austerity and cuts, as you just talked about, when the government is looking at a 15-something billion dollar deficit, um, do we not already know what the answer is before you even get that letter? Well, uh, MPP Skelly uh, said it this morning on the radio, but uh, um, in an email that we received from um, His Worship Mayor Eisenberger, he, he said that he's 100% confident that MPP Skelly does not um, make provincial policy, government policy. So I expected that people would dismiss her commentary as political. Uh, I think it's wise, given my experience, with politics that you get it in writing uh, from the minister, uh, which becomes very clear government policy. So was that was that email today following her interview that the mayor sent? That's correct, right after I filed my notice of motion. So I'm, we'll try to get the mayor on in the next day or two, but does that mean that your understanding is that there is a belief, at least in some corners, that the billion dollars is somewhat flexible and more could be coming? I don't. I can't say that. Um, I, I just found it frustrating that in some corners of the city they immediately dismiss MPP Skelly's commentary as not being indicative of government policy. And it's been my experience that MPPs don't um, fly on their own. They generally speak specifically with notes given to them from ministers, and I have no doubt in my mind that she has been informed that that is the case. Regardless, it's important that we get it in writing so that everyone can see it, and then there's no doubt that this is not politics. If my memory serves, you, in fact, were Minister of Transportation at one time, correct? That is correct. Uh, If someone in your party had said something that was completely contrary to the position that your ministry held, what would have happened? Uh, There would have been a redaction immediately within hours of the statement. So the I, this is the fact that nothing has been said from the Ford government correcting Donna Skelly would probably, well, maybe, maybe suggest that she was saying what they feel. That would be my belief, yes. Uh, okay, so let's say that um, the, the transportation minister does exactly what you ask and is willing to put down in writing uh, what they're willing to pay. And I, I, frankly, I see no reason why he wouldn't, unless they were willing to go higher. I mean, if they if they have the $1 billion mark, I, I see no reason why he wouldn't be willing to put that down and say, you know, this is what's coming. Um, what then? What So what happens if it comes back and they say, you get your billion, we're good for the billion still, but if this thing is now looking at a $1.2 or $1.3 billion project, what then, Brad? Then there's going to have to be um, a reckoning with council and, and the city and the citizens as to whether or not LRT still continues down that road with that increased cost on the municipal tax base. You may recall the vast majority of of councillors indicated from day one that they were not willing to put any money into it 
the project. So uh, it, it will be very interesting from that standpoint. We only have 30 seconds left, but c- will we ever? would we ever really know what it's going to cost, though, until the shovels go in the ground? Because, again, you've just talked about the cost of living. Let's say that even today we say, yeah, we can still do it for a billion, but this is going to take six or seven or eight years. Would it not necessarily be higher by then just because that's what happens? Yeah, the government wouldn't. Yes, it would be. And the government won't indicate what the price will be until they actually tender the project. They'll release that price, um, but then there's always cost escalations even on that price. So we have to wait and see what that outcome is. It is an interesting one. I'm particularly interested by your point that the mayor, by his email, seems to think that maybe Councillor Skelly, or not Councillor Skelly, pardon me, MPP Skelly, was mm, speaking on her own. It'd be interesting to see if um, if that, in fact, is the case or if the government backs her on this one. Uh, Brad Clark, really appreciate the time, as always, today. Thanks for doing My this. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a video online today. Uh, it's not just didn't go online today. I saw it today. It's been online, I think, for a while. Uh, it is it is eye-catching. It is of actress Jennifer Lawrence. Many people know who Jennifer Lawrence is. It's of her body wearing the red dress and necklace that she wore at the 2016 Golden Globe Awards, answering questions in her voice. However, the face on her body is that of Steve Buscemi. Now, many people would know who he is. He's an actor. He's in Far- he was in Fargo. He's in Boardwalk Empire. He's in a million other shows and movies. The video is seamless. You could not tell by watching this that the actress, the person you're looking at, is not a real person. However, it's an amalgam of two. The only thing that might make you take note is that with Steve Buscemi's face on Jennifer Lawrence's body, he makes for a very unusual-looking actress. It is done, it was done, it was put together by digital technology in a process that people are calling deep faking. I want to bring in Mikhail Thalen, who is a freelance journalist. He has a piece on the Daily Dot, which is an online newspaper about the internet and digital media, about this topic, about deep fakes. Uh, Mikhail joins me now. Mikhail, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Can you take a second and for people who have never seen something like this, and, and if they want to go find this video, it'll give them nightmares, quite frankly, to see Steve Buscemi's face on Jennifer Lawrence's body. But explain the process. What, what is actually going on here that people are able to do this? So at first, this sort of technology was seen really only in universities where researchers uh, were taking sort of videos of their own face, and they were somehow superimposing it onto people, for example, former President George Bush and Barack Obama. So they would speak, but you would see the face of that president moving like theirs. And so over time, this this technology sort of trickled down to everyday people, where at about the end of late 2017, there started being communities online where people were actually making these of their own. So essentially what they're doing is using artificial intelligence to feed video and images um, into different tools and open source programs and then applying it onto a video. So essentially you're taking someone else's face and this machine learning process is sort of matching it up perfectly, as you saw in that video, to make it look like it's someone different on someone else's body. Yeah, and and like for anyone who's not seen this video before, if you're picturing a uh, a jib-jab or one of those things where it's like a ridiculous-looking thing, this is this is not that. This is seamless. This looks exactly... It's The person blinks, the person's facial expressions change at the appropriate time. I mean, this... 
Mikhail, this thing looks like it is a real person. It would be exceedingly difficult to tell unless you were really paying attention that this is not legit. Yeah, and that's why I was sort of shocked at the video. I was looking through an online community at different deep fakes to sort of see where the technology has come because I followed it for some time. And this video really stuck out because it is just so much better than the other ones out there. A lot of the other ones out there, you can tell they're fake. You know, the face color doesn't match up. Their eyes blink at awkward times. But this one is really sort of, you know, heads and tails above all the other content I've seen. Before we get fully to that, let me just back up for one second, because you mentioned that this thing started at universities and with professors and stuff. Generally... I think it's a fair statement to say that most things that people invent or work on at universities, that kind of thing, have some sort of, the idea is down the road, it'll have some sort of positive impact. You're working towards something for the betterment of mankind, usually, or at least for the betterment of your finances, if if you want to make a fortune. What was the, can you see what the ultimate best case scenario that a professor or the people at universities would be hoping this would work for? Well, what's interesting, when they first started showing this technology, they immediately highlighted more of the dangers as sort of the positives. Um, as, as far as the positive goes, I could see perhaps, you know, independent filmmakers or different animators using this technology. But I, I think the negative aspects have really taken center stage on the issue. Well, and, and that's, a, that's a great point, because Hollywood's been able to do this for years. I mean, the, the Hollywood has had special effects people. This kind of thing is not... New. We, I mean, look at any movie from Jurassic Park and before. I mean, we've seen stuff on film that blows us away and is believable to see it. But as you say, what's changed is this technology is now accessible to, I don't know, is it accessible to the everyday person or to people who know their way around computers? I mean, how accessible is this right now? So it's not yet at the point where anyone can sort of pick up this tool and within, you know, a few moments learn it. Um, The person who made this video, who I spoke with, said that he does have some computer background. He did have to do some sort of programming to make it as effective looking as it was. But as I said, it's getting to a point now where people are making tools that anyone can go download right now. And if you take the time to learn and you're willing to, you know, hunt down all the source images, you know, HD images to feed into that algorithm, um, Pretty much anyone could learn this if they devoted the time to it. And so what we have in this particular one, this first one, is a kind of hilarious video. Because, again, Jennifer Lawrence with Steve Buscemi's face is not, uh, I don't even know how you describe it. It might give you nightmares. But but this can also be troubling. And we're going to take a break in a second. But just before we get there, I mean, there there are big issues. There are also, well, I mean, one of the things that people... Mikhail have pointed out already is that this has been used nefariously by people to put celebrities faces on sex films and make it look like those celebrities are doing these things. You know, that's, that's creepy. That's bothersome. Um, but we can start to see, that's the first step. We can start to see how this thing could be used for poor purposes, for bad purposes. Yeah, absolutely. That was actually how it first sort of gained notoriety. Is of that course. People online were uh, taking those images of celebrities and placing on pornographic videos. But as you said, um, as it becomes more accessible, we're actually starting to see where people uh, are taking videos of people they know in their everyday life and then even paying different people online to create these videos for them for purposes of blackmail. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We now have the technology and much more commonly available technology than before that allows people using algorithms and computer programs and other things to create 
video that appears 100% realistic, but that isn't really. The The, the thing that got star- got me started on this, that got us to starting on this discussion, is a video that was made of Jennifer Lawrence, the actress, with an actor's face, Steve Buscemi's face, put on her. You can't tell that it's not her if you didn't know who she was. Mikhail Thalen is a freelance journalist. He specializes in... Um, things to do with technology. He's got a piece in the Daily Dot, which is an online newspaper. He's joining us now. And Mikhail, this, as I said just before the break, this is something that could be creepy or could be funny or could be whatever uh, at the worst of, well, not at the worst of times, because the worst of times, you can imagine if we are now able to create these kind of videos, these kind of images that look this realistic, that look this difficult to discern whether it's true or not, what kind of chaos a video of a quote of a world leader, of a Putin or a Trump or a Chinese leader or anything, this could significantly, this could have really serious implications. Exactly, and that's the big concern among the U.S. government right now is actually the possibilities to use this kind of technology to disrupt the upcoming 2020 presidential election. And in fact, the uh, U.S. Department of Defense is currently reaching out to researchers across the country, and they're trying to find ways that they can actually create other tools to detect deepfakes. And so far, they've come up with several methods, but it's sort of like an arms race where, you know, the better detection tools you create, the better people get at circumventing them and back and forth. But this isn't being taken then as a joke that it's just a bunch of computer nerds having fun with with digital images. I mean, they are taking this seriously. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one example uh, one expert gave, he said that although unlikely, imagine a scenario where someone makes a video of Donald Trump saying he's launched nuclear missiles at North Korea. And, I mean, given how fast news spreads nowadays, and given where we're sort of in this news environment where it seems where people are rewarded more for having news out first instead of having news correct, you could imagine any sorts of scenario, even if they're unlikely, we're reaching more and more to a point where it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that someone could make a video of a politician that could have serious ramifications. And even if it's not that, although that is terrifying, but even if it's not that, you mentioned the election. So let's say in an election now, a candidate on either party or any party you want, uh, that there is a video that suddenly appears of that candidate using a racial epithet or a hate term or something else. Uh, Immediately, probably, that candidate is toast. Yeah, and that's interesting because there are some experts who aren't that concerned. They're saying, you know what, there's, there's already people who believe in these wild conspiracy theories based on nothing, based on much less than convincing video. But we could actually see a point where if an actual legitimate video comes out of a politician saying a racial term, as you mentioned, they could actually blame it on deepfakes just because that technology exists. So it's almost – this could be a double-edged sword where people can now attempt to deny things just because deepfakes are out there. Well, as crazy as it sounds, it, it... – Potentially, it has the potential to alter what is true. I mean, we start all these things in candidate campaigns, and everything. We, we like to believe there is a truth. And if we don't have any idea now what is true and what isn't, because there are such convincing fakes out there, where does that leave us? Yeah, I mean, historically, video has been something that's been pretty rock solid in terms of sort of verifying information. Right. But yeah, if we're at a point where we can't even trust what we see anymore, and that's pretty troubling. But what's quite interesting is while I was talking with the creator of this video, he told me he was actually quite surprised at the reaction because he said that he could actually create a much better video if he wanted to, and he may do that in the future. Well, and you just said it, uh, Mikhail. We do, traditionally we have, and I think we still do, believe what we see. If we're watching a movie, 
we may set aside our our belief because we know it's a movie, we know it's a Hollywood production, but generally if we see it on TV and it's part of the news or we see a someone say this is true and we see video of it, we believe that. Still. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're such in such a hyper-partisan era it seems that even, you know, I think people are going to jump on whatever they want to believe is true, whatever their bias says, as opposed to what mm. the, the proof shows. And we're already seeing that now without this kind of technology being super uh, proliferic. But um, as it said, as it spreads more and more, I think we're going to probably have a few problems. Yeah, because if what we see isn't real, what is real? Like, how do we know then what is real? Because you're absolutely right. There has been, I mean, think back, you want to go back to 1960s, to the Kennedy assassination. There's a Pruder film. Now imagine this was 2019. Anybody could probably make up any kind of video that looks convincing. And then where are, I mean, what do we know? We don't know anything. Exactly. And and so that's why, as I said, there are researchers trying to counter this one technique that's being used right now is they're actually analyzing how often people in the videos blink because humans blink at a at a certain rate, whereas a lot of these videos, uh, the blinking doesn't look quite natural. But what's troublesome about that is that the video we're talking about today looks incredibly natural with its blinking. So I don't even know if that technique that was just you know recently talked about in the news as being quite effective, 95% success rate, they said. I don't even know if that would work against this specific video. Well, and as technology gets better, is it not going to be easier to make more and more convincing ones? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some people have sort of been joking online that, you know, we're probably going to get to a point where you can download an app on your phone for $3 and, you know, create a video of your own relatively quickly. I mean, we're not there yet. Absolutely not. But, you know, that could be something we see in the future. Uh, Mikhail Thalen, the, uh, the piece, you can find it online. It's at the daily com. Jennifer Buscemi, the combined name, Jennifer Buscemi is the deep fake that should seriously frighten you is the name of the piece. Go read it. Uh, it's an excellent piece. Uh, Mikhail, thanks for taking the time today to talk about it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, you know that. We talked about it here. You heard it elsewhere. You know that in recent weeks, Randy Ambrosi, who is the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, was down in Mexico doing some something, trying to drum up interest in the game. Trying, they had a draft. They had trying to find some Mexican players who maybe someday can make it into the CFL. I'm not entirely sure what the long term best case scenario would be. Anyway, that apparently is not the extent, the only extent of the international search mission for the CFL, because Randy Ambrosi is now going to be meeting officials from football Germany later this month, and then he's going to be visiting France, Austria, Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Denmark, apparently in his quest to grow the Canadian game overseas. I don't know that I quite understand what the point is, but I know who will. Rick Zamperin, who is one of this city's leading voices on football, maybe number one in this city. We'll count it as number one. Uh, Rick, thanks for doing this today. Hey, anytime. Uh, I will uh, guarantee that no one is going to get your quiz questions tonight because their brains are so frozen. I know. The deep freeze that we're in, and you alluded to it. So if anybody gets it correct, they should win something spectacular. I, I agree. They should win. Maybe a, a trip with Randy Ambrosi. To could be. Or a dream date with Ted Michaels, but probably the trip with Randy Ambrosi. That's a flip of the coin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm reading these stories. I'm, I'm trying to, 
I mean, I understand why a commissioner would want to bring attention to his league outside the traditional market because there's opportunities, perhaps in some cases, to build TV ratings or whatever else. But I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure I'm buying that with the CFL. Help me out here. What, how is this something that makes sense? Well, I think the commissioner alluded to it. It was in an article that I read either earlier today, or sometime yesterday, where. Uh, and you mentioned it, you know, they've, they've gone down to Mexico, they've held a combine, they've held a draft. Some of the players that have played in Mexico's pro league might get a chance to make a CFL roster, and that's all well and good. And now he's going to Europe to eventually drum up the same kind of system. But what he said that really stuck with me is that Canadian players, so players uh, or, or uh, guys who play football in Canada right now at the high school level, at the university level, and uh, those who want to continue playing their career uh, uh, on the pro stage, if they cannot make a CFL team, their careers pretty much peter out. Uh, they really don't have, in terms of playing the pro game, they really don't have a lot of options. So what he's intimating is uh, going down to Mexico and now his four-way into Europe, his, his Euro trip, if you will, is going to drum up some more partnerships in which you know player X who's playing at... Um, uh, you know, n- name a high school in town, St. Thomas More. He's playing at St. Thomas More. Uh, he goes to McMaster University, and he tries to make a CFL team, but can't. There might be an opportunity for that individual to play pro football in Mexico or Germany or Austria or Denmark or the other countries you mentioned. That is, I think, part of his thrust to go- grow the game globally. I'm not sure at this point I think it's about you know, TV ratings for CFL games in Mexico, although, you know, that might be part of it, uh, or increased merchandise sales of, you know, uh, a certain player from Mexico who has made a CFL team and is now a star back in his homeland. I think I think that's all part of it, but I think the, the main thrust of it is allowing Canadian uh, players to extend their careers beyond the CFL or if they can't make it into the CFL. Okay, and that makes sense. Now let me th- play devil's advocate. Let me throw some of the wrinkles into the ointment here mm-hmm, uh, yeah. to mix a metaphor. Because there are many. <laughs> um, would it, in, if there are leagues, and apparently uh, there are, is a German league, and there's other leagues, American football leagues in these European countries. Yeah. Would American players not be uh, possibly available for those leagues? Uh, American players make up most of those right. leagues. So, and here is the biggest stumbling block I see with this potential, uh, you know, Ambrosy plan, is if you have a player in Canada who has played in high school and has played in university and maybe was at one time on a CFL roster but just can't crack a lineup or can't get signed, uh, you know, they're obviously not going to the NFL. Uh, They might, in due course, go to this new league that's popping up down south or even the XFL in a couple of years. But here's the biggest stumbling block, is if a team in Germany wants any sort of player, they're going to look in their homeland first. They're probably going to look in another European league next because of the proximity of that player. Their third and maybe final option is going all the way to North America, because now you're talking about a bigger expense in bringing an individual who may not even be as good as any of the other players in Europe already. You have to bring that person over. Uh, there's always, you know, obviously a culture shift. There's costs in doing that. You have to house this person. I mean, that's a big hurdle for, uh, you know, a, a league in Europe, an American football league in Europe that is not 
uh, I don't think even anywhere close to what the CFL does from a business standpoint. So I think that's a big ask to ask a European team to look at a Canadian individual when, you know, stocking their lineups. I agree with you. And and that the next part follows that, because if you are going to then go over there and say, hey, look, we want you to take Canadians into your league, would it not be uh, uh, something you would expect that they will say, okay, fine, but if our guys get good enough, or maybe not even if our guys get good enough, like in Mexico, we want you to make an agreement to take our people back as well. Like you're not, the, he's not going to be able to go over there and say, "Hey, let's stockpile your league with Canadians. Ignore those Americans who right. have been playing high school or playing football since they were two. Ignore them. Fill your league with Canadians. That's not going to work unless you give them something back, right?" Well, even to that point, I mean, are we going to start a <clears throat> football player exchange program, just like a student exchange where, you know, we'll take these two guys and you can take these two guys? I mean, I think publicity-wise, that might be a good story for a day. But, I mean, to have a career out of it, I'm I'm not sure, especially when you throw in the cost, whether that makes any sense at all. So now you've got a CFL that y- you can't, I don't think, Rick, I don't think you can reduce the number of Canadians that you're going to have in the roster. I don't think you're going to look and say, okay, now uh, we've, we've got to have a Mexican and we've got to have a German and a Dane and a French guy and someone from Finland. I, I mean, I, I don't see that you can take the, the Canadian content away from the CFL and make it be successful. And what that would do is if they went that route, even with, let's say they open up two um, you know, European spots or, or one Mexican and one Euro spot, now you are watering down, in my mind, the CFL. That's product. right. You, you are watering down the the number of talented uh, players who would normally come from the NCAA or NFL castoffs who would be much better than anyone playing in Mexico or anyone playing in Europe because otherwise they would be playing in the NFL or in the CFL already, I would, I would assume. Um, so, yeah, this would lead to a watered-down league, and that, from a fan perspective, is not what they want to see. And then the last point that I would make as we follow, because I, I think you're agreeing with me on a lot of this stuff. So then you say, okay, we don't want to water down the league. We can't reduce the number of Canadians. It's the CFL. That's what makes it special. We yeah. can't water the league down by saying a bunch of Americans who have played all their life can't play here because we're making room for guys who are introductory players. So the next option would be, all right, we're going to add a couple roster spots to the roster, and you say they must be international players. There's two issues with that then. One is salary, because you've increased the, the amount you're having to pay now, and I don't know that teams are going to love that. And B, I think most people, Rick, in Canada would say, look, if you're going to expand the roster, let's expand it and say every team has to have a Canadian quarterback on its roster before we start bringing in a guy from Finland for no apparent reason. Yeah, that would be my vote as well, because you know there, there's been that call for a few years now. Uh, you know, the, the, the likes of Brandon Bridge only come around so often. And, you know, he has started a few games. He's played fairly well. And I think there's definitely a pride factor amongst Canadian football fans that, hey, you know, a Canadian can play this position and can play it effectively. You know, Russ Jackson was one of the all-time greatest quarterbacks of this league, and he is a Canadian. Um, I think there there's probably a conversation to be had that, and I'd be in favor of it, I'd rather see a Canadian QB, because how many times do we see the third-string quarterback get into a game, a Canadian QB be on the roster and maybe one day have a chance to start a game or play in a game. But I think there's an opportunity for that individual to develop, uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of pride in that too. 
So am I being overly cynical then to look at this Randy Ambrosi thing and say, look, if you, I mean, if the league wants to pay for you to go around and have these meetings and stuff, I suppose, you know, knock yourself out. Um, I, I just, I, I just don't see what the end game is. I don't see what the end result of this is. And furthermore, I mean, I, I, I think we have enough issues here in the league that I, I don't know that the solution lies in Sweden. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, the, the Mexico thing, the Europe thing, I mean, these are, you know, they're, they're not league-changing, um, you know, forays into, you know, growing the game. I think this is more of a, uh, I don't want to call it a, a publicity stunt, but it's just publicizing the CFL in non-traditional areas. Hey, European football fans, you love football, check out cfl.ca or, you know, uh, watch a game, uh, stream a game online and you might get hooked and, and, and buy a jersey or, or, or whatnot. I mean, the impact really revenue-wise and publicity-wise is very, very minimal. Uh, as you said, th- this league has a number of uh, humongous issues to deal with. Um, you know, growing the game globally is not going to have as big or even uh, anywhere close to as big as an impact of, you know, a new CBA or some of the other things that they're talking about in terms of keeping players safer than they have, you know, in the past. There's there's some massive issues on the table and on the horizon that this league should be concentrating on. Well, you, which is a new team on the East Coast that's coming in a few years. Well, maybe if they can get a stadium, well, which, that, yeah. which seems like a big issue to be working on. And you mentioned the CBA. Uh, last I recalled, there is no CBA yet for this coming year. Right. Uh, that to me seems like, now, I mean, look, I, I believe that Randy Ambrosi can walk and chew gum at the same time. I don't believe that he is not an intelligent man. He is, but to me, it would seem like you'd want to be at home working on the CBA rather than doing the Euro tour right now. It, it, I mean, just, I don't know, priorities. Well, you know what, if, uh, you know, this, this deal ends at, uh, you know, on the eve of day one of training camp, which is in and around the end of May, and if this league and the CFLPA, which, I mean, they have issues between themselves, and obviously a lot of it comes down to money, uh, but if there is any kind of work stoppage, you know there's going to be fans out there, you know there's going to be media types out there that say, hey, Randy, instead of focusing on you know, going to Mexico and holding a combine there or taking a European trip to drum up you know, the league's interest uh, in, in Europe, you should have been concentrating on the collective bargaining agreement. I, I just can see that happening, and there's obviously a deal to be had, but if that comes to be, there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. Let me play absolute conspiracy theorist, and it never <laughs> dawned on me until right this very second. Is there any chance that why he's going to all these places is to find potential replacement players in the event of a strike? Wow. Because then you wouldn't have to live here afterwards. You're just here for a little while, and then away you go. Yeah. And just dawned on me right now. I don't think so, but I don't know. No, I mean it's it's a, a, a great theory in the land of conspiracy for sure. But I mean, if if you're if you're a player in Europe or Mexico, you have no ties to Canada. You have no loyalty to this nation or this league. You would play football and get paid. Cross over the picket line. I'm sure they would, uh, because what else are they doing? Um, yeah, that that would be tragic. That well, that and again, I mean, I'm just throwing out the wildest. I I, I don't believe that. I don't think that's in any way likely, but it just dawned on me. I, that, that couldn't be the case, right? Well, stranger things have happened. Let me throw something else. We've got a few more minutes here. I want to ask you about this because um, speaking of things that I am truly very puzzled by in the world of football, and there are many of them, as people listening to the show well know, I am often confused. 
There was a, a Google has now Google does a lot of interesting things. You can do searches for stuff of popular searches and everything. And occasionally they come out with these stories. Well, the Super Bowl is this weekend and Google has come out with a map of the United States of which state, what is the favorite Super Bowl snack from each state based on searches in that state for Super Bowl snack. <laughs> I either believe that Americans, more than we have thought, have completely lost their minds or Google <laughs> is broken. <laughs> what would you guess? <clears throat> and I'm going to give you a few states and you tell me if you could guess based on these states. What I mean, a rough guess of what their Super Bowl favorite snack would be. We'll start with Texas. Okay. What do you think would be the food of choice to watch the Super Bowl in Texas? Well, I know Texas, I mean, they go big or they go home. Uh, so I'm going to guess ribs. That is an outstanding guess. I would have said ribs. I would have said uh, any kind of barbecue, really any yeah. kind of meat yeah. that was on a grill. Uh, spinach dip. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> According to Google, spinach dip is the number one Super Bowl snack in Texas. All right, let us go to North Carolina. What about North Carolina? Uh, now you got me thinking. I'm going to go with <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, chicken wings because I know reading a story earlier this week that 1.38 billion chicken wings are going to be eaten on Super Bowl weekend. So I'll go with chicken wings. That's a lot of armless birds. Um, Cobb salad. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, this is, I, I, okay, let us keep going here. Um, let us try, uh, where are we here? How about Indiana? Indiana. Beginning, sort of Central America, middle, just, you know, east, mid, mid-east. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's go with a, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm really trying to start. Yeah, I know. How about a grilled salmon? Fried rice. Fried rice. This is the top Super Bowl snack of choice. Yes. Uh, okay. I got a few more here that will throw you off probably. So you can just take a wild guess because there is zero chance you're getting any of these. Okay. Uh, Nevada. What would be the top Super Bowl snack? According to Google, based on searches, what is the top Super Bowl snack in Nevada? Now, this is Las Vegas. What would yeah. be, I mean, I was thinking beer would be the number one thing or, or some sort of booze. Yeah. Um, what would you think? I'll go with one of my favorites, chili. Well, how about now? And, and again, when I read this to you, contemplate the name for a moment. It's not only a ridiculous thing that they've chosen, yeah. but it doesn't even make sense. Vegan cheesy bacon spinach dip. Oh my God. I don't even think in, in Nevada, they understand what vegan means. <laughs> cheesy <laughs> bacon. Bacon in the same sentence. <laughs> uh, in Nevada, I guess they're also drunk. They don't know. Um, all right, a couple more here. Uh, Colorado. What would be the t number one in the in the land of the Denver Broncos who have been to a few Super Bowls? What would be the number one snack food? I'm going to go with a Coors Light infused avocado dip. <laughs> Broccoli cheese soup. <laughs> Can you imagine a bunch of guys sitting down at the table getting ready to watch the Super Bowl? Chowing down on some broccoli cheese soup. Yes, it. it th there are a few that. Uh, okay, two more. Um, that one I got to leave till the very end because it's just the most insane one possible. Um, all right, let us go to Nebraska, the absolute, almost dead center of the United States, the heartland of the United States. What would be the thing that they would want to eat 
for the Super Bowl? A luscious plate of corn on the cob. Uh, that sounds, and I'm starving, by the way. All these things are making me hungry. Right. Uh, pigs in a blanket. See, that's a good one. I like it. I just, yeah. who thinks of, how, how many Google searches could there possibly have been for pigs in a blanket? <laughs> uh, among other ones, before I get to them, there are uh, a number here that are, there's granola bars for one state. That's for uh, Alabama. No, that's wow. for, sorry, Miss, Mississippi. Granola bars in Mississippi. Um, there's turkey chili in South Carolina. There are jalapeno poppers in Illinois, Irish stew in Iowa, in Montana. And if you get this one right, Rick, I I don't know what I will do for you if you get this one right, but you would have to be Kreskin and every other psychic melded together into one. (laughs) The number one Super Bowl snack in the state of Montana, where the cowboys live, where they ride the... The range and all that stuff. Where? What is the number one? The number one Super Bowl food in Montana. How about a gargantuan bowl of Rocky Road ice cream? <laughs> uh, that's close. That would chocolate peanut butter cake is in. Um, I don't know one of the little Rhode Island or something. No, in Montana, the number one Super Bowl snack, lentil soup. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I didn't cool. even know they had lentils in Montana. That's amazing. Maybe maybe that's so they stay warm on their saddle the next day. I'm not sure. These sound like lively Super Bowl parties. Could you imagine going to a, you know, you, Bubba the Cowboy walks in for the Super Bowl party in Montana after doing a day of rounding up his, his cattle. <laughs> what do you got on the grill there, Bubba? Well, we got some <laughs> lovely lentil soup. Wow. There you go. So plan your Super Bowl party accordingly, Rick. Um, doesn't say any provinces here we don't uh, we don't know what they are in uh in canada but i'm, I'm hoping it's not lentil soup yeah I'll, I'll opt for the pizza and wings any day certainly with laura hampshire sitting in this studio right before i sit here i'm hoping she's not having lentil soup the day before just saying <laughs> uh rick zamprin you can hear him here on 900 chml all the time he's on here all the time rick thanks for doing this today. i appreciate it you got it anytime the scott radley show weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 chml the Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.